G'day. Welcome back. It's the 2nd of June, 1946. It's Sunday. And today we'll hear how Betty and her colleagues managed to slip away from the crowds for a little bit of peace and quiet. But before we do, we'll continue the story of UNRWA. Chapter 10. No Mass Starvation. Almost half of the money UNRWA spent and much more than half of its procurement time went into food. There's no doubt this food saved millions of lives. From the governments of the invaded nations and from the people themselves has come again and again the simple statement that they could not have got through the first two hard post-war years without it. Nutritionists of wide reputation say that three specific famines, which seemed almost inevitable, were averted by UNRWA, one in urban Austria, and one each in rural Yugoslavia and rural Greece. But though actual starvation on a wide scale was prevented in Europe, acute hunger was not. Great pools of human beings have had barely enough food to live on for years. Underfeeding, and the diseases that mushroom with it, spreads out across Europe and the Far East like a mantle. Food and more food was the request of the receiving countries, and food and more food was UNRWA's procurement quest. Drought and unexpected slowness in rehabilitating local agriculture cut down indigenous production in one country after another. These countries were forced to revise their estimates of most pressing needs and then to revise them again to include more food often at the expense of agricultural equipment which would have helped increase the yield of the local soil. More than once, seeds sent in for planting had to be used to keep human beings alive. Ground was lost in the battle against starvation and then gained again. UNRWA's headache word was non-availability. Spelled out, it meant many things. For instance, an international allocating authority would assign a certain portion of a commodity in short supply to UNRWA. That allocation, however, was simply a hunting license. UNRWA had to find and buy the commodity from the supplying country in accord with the allocation. Usually, it had then to be procured through another agency. All of this took time, and often there was no game at all. As a result, there were many tight squeezes and dramatic incidents in getting supplies to a needy country. During emergency periods, UNRWA shipping was on a tailor-made basis. Frequently, a wireless was flashed to a ship in mid-ocean, directing it to change destination as food stocks dipped lower in one country than in another. In the spring of 1947, it became obvious that the food UNRWA was sending into Austria, Poland and Greece would not stretch until the harvest. UNRWA's entire 1947 program was merely a slipover of supplies which couldn't be delivered in 1946 because of procurement and shipping hurdles. To tide these countries over until they could get assistance from some other source, the administration switched $35 million into an emergency food fund. Many lives were unquestionably saved by this measure. Chapter 11. Bread for Millions. 
The bulk of the food procured was bread grains, since they are the staff of life in many parts of the world. They can be refined into flour for spaghetti, or black bread, or any other customary food. The total Unra bread grain shipments was truly staggering. They would have baked five one-pound loaves of bread for every man, woman, and child in the world. Bread grains went into every receiving country, except the Russian republics, where grain was not needed. Even China received wheat and corn when rice could not be procured. Other UNRWA foods were likewise chosen for their nutritive value. Fats and oils, dairy products, peas, beans, sugar, canned and powdered milk, and many other types of simple foods that would ship easily and not spoil. Most of them were dehydrated or in some other compact form that took up little space. The meat UNRWA procured was primarily canned and included blood sausage, horse meat, lunch cuts, toshonka, vegetable stews and hashes, and similar meat products. The supplying countries did not forgo a single steak or roast or lamb chop because of UNRWA's purchases. UNRWA was also the US quartermaster's best post-war customer. At war's end, the administration purchased a substantial amount of the surplus food stocks stacked up around the world. The story of UNRWA will continue in further episodes. But now, let's find out about Betty's Big Day Out. Mrs. Betty Suter, UNRWA. 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, China, 2nd of June, 1946. Mother dear, you will notice that I'm trying a new mail system. I believe that these letters go through the China Post, air mail across the hump to Calcutta and thence to Australia. It will be interesting to see just how long the different type of letter takes. Let me know which is best. I imagine that the British fleet is not moving from China to Australia as much these days as it used to do, so maybe the ordinary letters that I write could be held up at Hong Kong for a while. Today turned out to be a lovely day after all. I'm afraid I woke up with the pip and just longed to be at home or anywhere other than here. Added to my restlessness, it was a very grey and humid morning and the prospects were not bright. Straight after breakfast, I went to the office and did two hours of solid work, then I wrote a number of letters, and then Sully came in to see what I was up to and asked me if I would like to go for a picnic with him for the afternoon and have five o'clock tea out. We gathered Marge and Claude and into the jeep straight after lunch with our box of rations and some rugs and off we went. It is the hardest job in the world to find privacy in China. Wherever you go, hundreds of people bob up from nowhere and look at you as if you came out of the zoo. We drove miles and miles and more miles and eventually came across something that looked like and was an experimental farm and forestry school. So, nothing daunted, we saluted the sentry, drove straight in through the barbed wire entrance and found ourselves a quiet spot among the baby pine trees. And 
we could hardly believe it. Not a single solitary person came and stood over us during the three hours or so that we spent there. The weather was still dull, and we had to put up the poncho to keep the rain off our primus when we were cooking the tea, but we really enjoyed ourselves away from the usual crowd, from Unra House, and able to cook up something for ourselves. We had pineapple juice first, hot meatballs and spaghetti, and sweet corn, buttered fresh rolls, blackberry jam, cheese, fruit salad, Christmas cake, which Sully had just received for Christmas 1945, and coffee. Yes, it was good and it was fun. We stretched out on our rugs like a lot of niggers and enjoyed the peace and quiet, full tummies and a nice feeling of contentment. So I have enjoyed the day after all. And now I've had a hot bath, feel all fresh and clean and comfortably tired, and it is only eight o'clock. I may write a few more letters and then early to bed. Last night, we all went out to be guests of the French fathers at the Catholic mission. We had quite a good evening, in spite of the language difficulties. The senior father was 81 years old and quite a dear. The younger priests were rather gay. We have all decided that being a missionary in China is a rather desirable existence. They certainly turned on a very good dinner for us. It was a Western-style dinner, but with about ten courses, hors d'oeuvres, soup, salad, pork, fish, sweets, cheese, oranges, definitely a luxury here, and all manner of things. The wine flowed freely too, and a good time was had by all. The actual dinner lasted from seven o'clock till 10.30, at which time we made our way home and continued the party here, part singing on the veranda till later than midnight, and finishing up with tins of toddy in the officer's mess, Sully and Keith's bedroom. Incidentally, toddy is a pure milk and chocolate drink. The men here maintain that on Saturday nights we must all forget everything about work and join in together and have fun. It is a good idea, and we look forward to it. The subject of the moment concerns the movement of parts of the staff into the second house, adjoining this one, which is now ready for occupation. Bill Duncan's wife is on her way here, though Bill has had to go to Hong Kong in a hurry, as she was very ill on arrival there, and we are expecting five more people on the staff. The second house became a necessity. The present plan is for all the girls to go over there and take the top floor, the lower floor, to be given over to the Duncans entirely. Marge and I don't like the idea much, as we have three old maids who are rather difficult to live with, and we will all be thrown close together over there. However, if it has to be, it has to be. Just after we had dressed our room up too, with mosquito net curtains and all, just the same as the army, says Marge. Getting back to the mail problems, would you arrange, as a matter of interest, for two letters to be sent to me on the same day? Air letters, one addressed to 370 North Suchar Road, 
and one direct to UNRWA regional office, Nanchang, Changxi, China. I'm beginning to think the biggest delay of all is at that terrible embankment building, the home of the disorganisation plus plus. On Friday last, May 31st, I received your air letter, the letter numbered five, but I've only received four of them so far, dated April 28th, and Dosh's, dated April 14th, and Gwenda's, dated May 1st. I just cannot follow these mails at all. I also got the two heralds of April 3rd and 6th, which I have sent on today to Brigadier Field, who is still in Manchuria. He wrote me such a nice letter and sent it down to Shanghai by hand of one of his staff, who was going to see if I would like a job with the brig up there. Since I'm really quite happy here for the present, I told him that I could not very well ask for a transfer just yet. Maybe later on I will see what could be done. I would like to go up there, even if the communists are still waging a war. I have posted to Dad a copy of my first circulated report, and I will send on others from time to time. I rather think he will like to have them, but if they are too much junk around the place, then tell me, and I will cease loading the post. I'm writing to Cousin Roland tonight, having received such a nice letter from him. I really do want to get to England some day, but I rather think that I will head for home after the year here, even if I go off again later. Since I can only send two pages in this envelope, I'm compelled to stop here. Lots of love. Boo. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. Voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne. And the featured tune this episode may be very familiar. McNamara's Band. Performed by Bing Crosby and the Jesters with Bob Haggett and his orchestra. It was a big hit in 1946. name is McNamara, I'm the leader of the band. Although we're few in numbers, we're the finest in the land. We play at wakes and weddings and at every fancy ball. And when we play to funerals, we play the march from Saul. Oh, the drums go bang and the cymbals clang and the horns they blaze away. McCarthy pumps the old bassoon while I the pipes do play. And Hennessy, Tennessee toodles of food and the music is something grand. A credit to old Ireland is McNamara's band. Right now we are rehearsing for a very swell affair. The annual celebration, all the gentry will be there. When General Grant to Ireland came, he took me by the hand. Says he, I never saw the lights of McNamara's band. Oh, the drums go bang and the cymbals clang and the horns they blaze away. McCarthy pumps the old bassoon while I the pipes to play. And Hennessy, Tennessee, toodles of food and the music is something grand. A credit to old Ireland is McNamara's band. Oh, my name 
famous Uncle Julius and from Sweden I did come To play with McNamara's band and beat the big bass drum And when I march along the street the ladies think I'm grand They shout this Uncle Julius playing and with an Irish band Oh, I wear a bunch of shamrocks and a uniform of green And I'm the funniest looking Swede that you have ever seen There are O'Briens and Ryans and Sheans and Means they come from Ireland But by Yemeni I'm the only Swede in McNamara's band All the drums go banging, the cymbals clanging, the horns they blaze away McCarthy pumps the old bassoon while I the pipes to play And Hennessy, Tennessee tunes the flute and the music is something grand A credit to old Ireland is McNamara's band 